Welcome to the Jesus Christ, Our Savior and Redeemer podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums that testify of Christ's teachings, His life, ministry, and mission, and His sacred atonement. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. It's wonderful to be here with you this morning. Thanks for coming out on such a beautiful spring day. I'd especially like to thank my wife for being here. She's my rock. I'd also like to thank my son Brian and my son Christopher for being here and my mother-in-law Phyllis, who's here with us today. I'd like to thank all of you, friends and colleagues, students, faculty, all of you who come out today. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here with you this be here this morning with you to discuss a topic that's very important to all of us, and that is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As President Samuelson mentioned, I was baptized. It's been almost 14 years. It will have been 14 years just this next month. I was baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but my journey here began into my baptism began many years earlier. It was on a fall day almost 25 years ago that I was sitting in a hospital waiting room uh, in San Diego, California. My fiance, who soon thereafter became my wife, was scheduled to have surgery to, to clear out a blockage in her trachea. The doctor was going to attempt a new procedure using a laser to burn away the excess tissue. Now, we, we see that laser surgery is very common these days, but 25 years ago, it was actually quite rare. And although I was worried initially, I only became more worried when the doctor came in and said he had never used a laser before. <laughs> and so the risks seemed to be quite great on various things that might occur. In any event, all, came, all, went, all went well, obviously. Lynn is here with us today. And... and has no has no negative consequences from that, but what I want to talk about, what I recall, um, one of the things I recall most, and Phyllis, I apologize for bringing you into this without your permission, but I hope you don't mind. But I was actually sitting next to Phyllis, my future mother-in-law, in this waiting room, and I had just met her. I obviously was not a member of the church. Um, Lynn comes from a very strong uh, Latter-day Saint family, and. The thing I recall most about having this conversation I had with with Phyllis was that she asked me about, she asked me, what do you believe about Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father? And I'm afraid I don't recall exactly what my reply was. I'm sure I fumbled quite a bit, but I doubt if it was a very satisfactory reply. Uh, But she must not have thought I was so bad because she let me marry her daughter eventually. But then I realized that I hadn't really thought seriously about Jesus Christ or his father. So a few years after we married, as I mentioned, she did marry me, I had made little progress in, understand, in, in really understanding the Savior and his, his, his role in, in, in all of our lives. And although I, de- I had devoted part of mine, I still do de- devote part of my professional life to studying uh, the social and cultural aspects of Christian religions, I had not pursued doctrinal studies, nor had I personalized any of the teachings of the church. I did go to church uh, somewhat faithfully, but I hadn't become a member yet. But then I had a dream that shook my soul. I was in the entryway of a white building waiting for Lynn, 
I looked a few feet to my left and saw her with a bearded man. Somehow I knew that she was very close to this man. I immediately thought he was her best friend, and it confused me for a moment. But then he looked at me, this man, this bearded man, looked at me in a rueful way and walked away. An intense feeling of sadness overcame me, for I realized that he was my wife's friend, but he could not be mine. I joined the church a few years later and began a new journey, but I still had a lot to learn. In 2005, my best friend passed away from cancer. His name was Son, and he was not a member of the church, but he was a fine and honorable Christian man with a wonderful family, two young children, and a wonderful wife. A couple of nights before, his, before the funeral, I had a dream about him, and if you'll indulge me for a moment, I'd like to read a description of this dream that I delivered as part of his eulogy. During a fitful night's sleep, having just found out that son had passed away to rejoin the Lord, I had a deep desire to see him once more, to make sure he was all right, or perhaps simply to test my faith. I dreamed I was walking along a corridor in a building where I work, and if you want a visual of this corridor, it was actually the Joseph F. Smith building on the second floor um, northwest corner where the history department is. I remember this quite clearly. But the corridor was dark, and I could just make out a shadow of a person who was facing away from me. And then I realized who that person was. It was my friend's son, and he appeared to be waiting for someone. My first thought was one of fear. I did not want him to be in the dark all alone. So I began to approach him, and as I got nearer, a light began to glow around him and get brighter. It was then that I realized that it was not son, my friend who was in darkness, it was me. He was bathed in a vivid light that swept me into it. Without saying a word, he turned around and grabbed me in a hug just as I began to weep. I then knew he was there for me, that he was in an eternal light that would never go out. Now, we all know what the source of this light is. According to the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In the Book of Mormon, Alma, Alma taught his son Shiblon that the Lord Jesus Christ is the light, is the life, and the light of the world. Now, I, although I have no idea if my dream had a literal quality to it, I like to believe that my friend has entered this light. These episodes from my life, as well as many others, have led me to want to know more about the Savior. This is both an intellectual, intellectual and spiritual pursuit that requires study and faith. I want to get to know him better, to know about his mortal life, his role in bringing forth the atonement, and his many teachings that we need to understand and follow so that we can achieve true happiness. Therefore, please let me share a small part of this pursuit because I think it has improved my life in ways that I probably don't appreciate enough. We all know that there are many metaphorical and literal names for the Savior. In addition to his mortal moniker of Jesus and his self-ascription as the light of the world, we also know him as the Lord, the Son of God, the Bread of Life, the Living Water, the Lamb of God, the Redeemer, Emmanuel, Jehovah, and by many other titles. Although we regularly use several titles in the church, I would like to highlight three that are often used together. 
Perhaps we know these best from the words written by the 18th century Baptist pastor Samuel Medley for the hymn, I Know That My Redeemer Lives. The third verse includes the lines, He lives, and while he lives, I'll sing. He lives, my prophet, priest, and king. For some reason not entirely apparent to me, I've always been intrigued by this combination of words. Considering those common uses of these terms, it seems that prophets, priests, and kings are supposed to be subordinate to the Savior. I therefore wish to dig a little deeper and consider how the Lord takes on these roles. First of all, what is the source of this triple combination? Although the terms are common titles for the Savior, they are not used in this particular arrangement anywhere in the standard works. Thus, we must search more broadly to find the origin of this phrase. The historical record suggests that the term prophet, priest, and king as applied to Jesus originated with Eusebius, the bishop of Caesarea in Palestine during the early 4th century. Eusebius wrote, and I quote, that his anointing was divine is proved by the fact that he alone of all who ever lived is known throughout the world as Christ and is honored by his worshipers throughout the world as king, held in greater awe than a prophet and glorified as the only high priest of God, end quote. More than 1,000 years later, John Calvin used the term threefold office to designate these roles taken on by the Lord. Calvin was particularly interested in linking the Jesus of the, of the New Testament with the three offices from the Old Testament that represented God's appointed servants. Yet he also saw that these three sacred offices were exemplified and perfected in Jesus Christ, Others, such as Moses and Melchizedek, may have, fulfilled role, may have fulfilled these roles during certain dispensations, but Jesus is the only perfect prophet, high priest, and king anointed to rule on heaven and in, on an earth and in heaven. One scholar says that when we understand the Savior in these roles, they come into, quote, perfect bloom. Many others have emphasized another name for Jesus that encompasses the threefold office, that of Messiah. As you know, Messiah is the Hebrew word meaning the anointed. The Greek parallel is Christ, meaning Jesus, thus Jesus Christ means Jesus the anointed. In the Old Testament, it was through sacred anointing that prophets, priests, and kings were set apart to perform their duties. They were anointed as a symbol of purification and consecration being made holy and thus fit to serve God. For instance, we learn that Moses poured the anointing oil upon Aaron's head and anointed him to sanctify him so that Aaron could perform his priestly duties. The Lord commanded Elijah to anoint Elisha as a prophet. Samuel anointed David to be king even before he took over the throne from Saul. And we learn from the Book of Mormon that kings were anointed among the Nephites and the Jaredites. The Savior was also anointed to conduct his sacred duties, perhaps as with his baptism at the hands of John, to serve as an example to others and fulfill all righteousness. Some have pointed out that he was anointed three times, once during the pre-mortal existence and twice during his ministry on earth. Joseph Smith lends support for the pre-mortal, pre-mortal anointing to, quote, He, the Lord being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and the anointed Son of God from before the foundation of the world, end quote. The two mortal anointings occurred when the Savior was baptized and when Mary poured oil on him at Bethany just prior to his entry into Jerusalem. 
I'll now examine the three offices that Jesus Christ fulfills, prophet, priest, and king. I have two reasons for taking these steps. First, I hope it will help us honor him better, perhaps by understanding a little more what it means to say he is the Messiah. Second, just as with other sacred roles, it's helpful to see how Jesus perfected them, thus providing an exemplar for others. Let me start with Jesus' role as prophet. In simple terms, a prophet is one who represents God to mankind. We learn from numerous passages in the Old Testament and the Book of Mormon that prophets serve as messengers who reveal God's word, call people to repent, teach them to obey God's laws, and prepare them for the coming of the Savior. Thus, we recall that Lehi, following his first recorded vision, went forth among the people and began to prophesy and to declare unto them concerning the things which he had both seen and heard. And it came to pass that the Jews did mock him because of the things which he testified. For he truly testified of their wickedness and their abominations. And when the Jews heard these things, they were angry with him, yea, even as with the prophets of old whom they had cast out and stoned and slain, and they also sought his life that they might take it away. Likewise, Samuel the Lamanite preached repentance in the land of Zarahemla and was run off by disbelievers, whereas Abinadi was executed for teaching God's will to the, for, for the people and the coming of the anointed one. Thus we see the fate of many of God's messengers, including persecution, mockery, and even death. Just as with prophets before him suffered such tribulations, the Savior experienced widespread rejection of his holy mantle. Two prophets of the Old Testament whose lives most, most directly anticipated the Saviors were Moses and Elijah. It's no coincidence that these two prophets of old appeared during his transfiguration on the mount. Jesus was likened unto Moses by a number of parallel life experiences, including both were tempted by Satan, both were transfigured on the mount, both were saved as infants from certain death, and both confronted powerful political and religious leaders at the risk of their own lives. Like Elijah, Jesus taught using parables. He healed the sick, raised the dead, and suffered rejection and persecution at the hands of his own people. The Savior, like Elijah, also preached to people outside of Israel. Unlike most prophets before his time, the Savior expressed concern for all individuals to conduct themselves according to the laws that he had prepared for them. Yet the Savior transcended the sacred mantles of all previous prophets. While on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah spoke to him about his departure or his exodus. This referred to his impending death and, the resur and resurrection, but it also represented the journey that would bring people to God through the atonement. By offering an atoning sacrifice and overcoming death, the Lord surpassed the prophetic roles of both Elijah and Moses. As the theologian Robert Sherman wrote, and I quote, the New Testament clearly portrays Jesus as more than a prophet. He speaks and acts with his own authority and power. He proclaims the kingdom of God. More than that, he is himself the revelation of God's truth and purposes. Indeed, he not only enlightens, but empowers persons to recognize and claim God's truth as their own true meaning and end, and as such in him, prophecy itself is fulfilled, end quote. Nephi taught that God would raise up a prophet from among the Jews 600 years hence, yet this man would be more than a prophet. He would be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. 
Now, whereas prophets represented God to the people, priests represented the, the people to God. Priests function as mediators between God and mankind. Understanding the Savior's role as a priest can be difficult in a biblical sense because priests were of the Levitical line, whereas the Savior was descended from the tribe of Judah. Yet we learn in Psalms 110 that the Lord would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the Lord was a priest of an order that predated the Levites. We understand through modern revelation that this involves a distinction between the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood. And we are fortunate to have this information since it is difficult to fully understand the Savior's priestly role without our extra-biblical sources. For example, who was this Melchizedek in whom we find the higher priesthood? The Old Testament briefly mentions that he was the king of Salem, or Jerusalem, and a high priest who blessed Abraham and received his tithing. But if we read inspired scripture, we learn that he was also bestowed he also bestowed the priesthood on Abraham and was a man of mighty faith who convinced the people of his kingdom to repent. Because of his great works, Melchizedek was known as the Prince of Peace and the King of Heaven. These titles suggest that he was the Old Testament figure who resembled the Savior most closely. He was a prophet, priest, and king. Much of our understanding of the Savior's role as a high priest of the order of Melchizedek comes from the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. As is well known, Paul was writing to a group of Jewish Christians who would have been familiar with the, Levitic, with the Levitical priesthood and its responsibility for sacrificial rites in the temple. He told his readers that Jesus was the apostle and high priest of our profession. Paul's intent was to show that the Savior in his role as high priest fulfilled and transcended the law of Moses since he, was, since he offered a perfect sacrifice through his atonement. At the time of Jesus' mortal ministry, the temple high priest was designated in Jewish tradition to represent the Lord. He wore the name of the Lord on his forehead and was the only priesthood member allowed to enter the Holy of Holies and make the blood sacrifice on the annual Day of Atonement. Paul maintained that Jesus was able to save all, man, save all because he was sinless, unlike the high priests who presided in the temple. Consequently, there was no longer a need for daily sacrifices first for the priest's sins and then for the people. The blameless Lord, the spotless Lamb of God, whose blood was far superior to any animal's, offered a sacrifice beyond any that a person could offer. It is only through the shedding of his blood and his atoning sacrifice that we may be reconciled fully with Heavenly Father. As Paul wrote in the ninth chapter of Hebrews, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having attained eternal redemption for us. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. The Savior understands our weaknesses and infirmities. He knows the temptations we face. He has suffered for us. He is thus the perfect high priest and the perfect mediator for representing mankind to the Father. Yet he is much, much more than this. 
Unlike other high priests, he was both priest and sacrifice. In fact, his one great sacrifice is of greater eternal worth than all those that have come before. The third part of the threefold office of Christ is king. Of the three, this is probably the Savior's best-known title. We find it in films such as the 1961 epic King of Kings and in our LDS hymn book. Think of I Believe in Christ, or the words to I Believe in Christ, and Jesus of Nazareth, Savior and King. His kingly duties are also easier to understand. We know that Jesus, who lived a mortal life, is the Lord of the, New, of the Old Testament, the one known as Jehovah. He created the earth and continues to lead his church. Thus, he is our holy leader, our Lord who reigneth, our King of kings. His mortal claims to kingship are due to both his earthly parents being descendants of King David, for it was prophesied by Samuel that one of David's descendants would rule over God's everlasting kingdom. Like David, this Messiah would be a shepherd king who would save Israel. Even before Jesus' conception, the angel Gabriel told Mary, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Following his birth, Jesus was recognized by the wise men from the east and by Anna the prophetess as the fulfillment of Samuel's prophecy. However, he was, like, he was unlike any king who had come before. The Old Testament kings were leaders of nations, often warrior kings who led their people in battle and administer kings who oversaw the running of the state. Most kings eventually ran afoul of God in some way, usually because of their sinless acts. For example, we read that when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God. And others were simply wicked, like King Noah, who encouraged priestcraft and put Abinadi to death. In fact, many of us, especially in this country, have been conditioned to dislike and mistrust the idea of a king. Yet as we search for exemplar kings who were in the image of the Savior, we need look no further than King Benjamin. Not only was he a just ruler who seemed to care little for his own aggrandizement, but he was also a genuine servant king who cared for his people, worked alongside them, and taught them to serve each other. If you'll allow me to quote from Mosiah 2, uh, verses 9, 16 through 19, of course, all of you are, I'm sure all of you will recognize this. This is King Benjamin speaking to his people. And I think this shows the kind of king that, that up until that point exemplified the servant king. Behold, I say unto you, because I said unto you that I had spent my days in your service, I do not desire to boast, for I have only been in the service of God. And behold, I tell you these things, that ye may learn wisdom, that ye may learn that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. Behold, ye have called me your king, and if I, whom, whom ye call your king, do labor to serve, to serve you, then ought ye not to labor to serve one another." And behold, also, if I, whom ye call your king, who has spent his days in your service, and yet has been in the service of God, do merit any thanks from you, oh, how you ought to thank your heavenly king. The notion of a servant king was perfected in the Lord. Indeed, he often resisted the title of king during his mortal ministry. 
The Gospel of John reports that reports after miraculously feeding the multitude, Jesus perceived that the people who had witnessed his miracles would come and take him by force and make him a king, so he departed. He also would not give Pilate or Herod the satisfaction of indicting him for the seditious act of designating himself king of the Jews. He told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Then when Pilate asked him, art thou a king then? Jesus answered, thou sayest that I am a king, To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. The Savior understood his role. He was tasked with teaching the people a new covenant, and with the atonement, the ultimate sacrifice, to bring mankind back from a fallen state into the presence of the Father. He was already a king, so there was no need to be given the title. Even to those who knew of his divine kingship, it must have been confusing because his mortal life represented the humble nature of his sovereignty. Recall that the Old Testament was understood by many as prophesying a Messiah who would be king, and this king was to deliver the people from conquest and the physical suffering they endured at the hands of their rulers. Instead, Jesus, who had authority over the entire world, turned the notion of a messianic king on its head. He was born in a stable, He traveled not with soldiers, but with fishermen and tax collectors. He dined with Samaritans and sat down with the poor and downtrodden. Not only did he refuse all earthly treasures that kings tended to receive, but he also showed the people a humble king entering Jerusalem on a donkey, as was prophesied. He did not come to Jerusalem for a rich royal feast, but to preside over a humble meal with his friends, even washing the feet of those in attendance. The mistake made by many was assuming a warrior king when the Savior came as a shepherd king and a servant king. His sovereignty was not demonstrated by temporal wealth or political conquest, but by his victory over death and the freedom for mankind that this entailed. We await his triumphant return that will usher in the new millennium. His kingdom shall be fulfilled and he will reign as king over the millennial earth. As we are taught in the Doctrine and Covenants, For the Lord shall be in their midst, and his glory shall be upon them, and he will be their king and their lawgiver. In closing, let me quote from President Monson from a recent general conference. He asked the following, Who is the king of glory, this Lord of hosts? He is our master. He is our savior. He is the son of God. He is the author of our salvation. He beckons, follow me. He instructs, go and do thou likewise. He pleads, keep my commandments. It's my desire that all of us may get to know the Savior better, including his role as the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Recall that we use several names for for the Savior. We call him the Son of God. We call him the Bread of Life. We call him Emmanuel. We call him the Anointed One. We call him our Savior. We call him Jehovah. But I'd like to emphasize his role, another role that he serves, and that is of our friend. I was mistaken in the conclusion I drew from the dream I discussed earlier. He is my friend. But just like with all close and precious friendships, it takes effort on my part to get to know the Savior better and to appreciate all that he does for me, for my family, and for the world, and of course for all of you. 
I offer testimony that it is to him that we owe our lives and the promise of full potential as noble children of Heavenly Father. May we love and honor him always. I leave these words with you in his sacred name. Amen. You've been listening to the Jesus Christ, Our Savior and Redeemer podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on overcoming adversity by study and by faith. Come follow me, love and marriage, and the prophet Joseph Smith. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.